Hey, everyone, before we start the show, a bit of news. So some of you may know of another podcast I host. It's called How I Built This, and it's a show about the world's greatest living entrepreneurs. Anyway, last year, after a year of doing live shows, we decided we wanted a deeper experience with our community. So we decided to launch a full-day How I Built This Summit. And it was so amazing and fun that we're doing it again this year. But this time, we're doing it over two days. It's happening October 22nd to 23rd in San Francisco with support from American Express. And this year, we are doubling down on our main stage speakers. You're going to be able to hear from and probably even meet some of the greatest living founders and entrepreneurs in the world, including Sarah Blakely of Spanx, Stuart Butterfield of Slack, Kevin Sistrom and Mike Krieger of Instagram, Tarek Fareed of Edible Arrangements, David Nealeman of JetBlue, Troy Carter, who managed Lady Gaga, Marcia Kilgore of Bliss, Jen Rubio of Away, and many others, including special surprises. And on top of that, we'll have dozens of side sessions with experts and special guests on everything from the nuts and bolts of starting and scaling your business to ways of thinking in a more innovative and creative way. The food is great. The coffee is great. The party is super fun. The How I Built This Summit is one of the best investments you can make in your own professional and personal development. And most importantly, you will meet people who will become lifelong friends and contacts. So please join us in San Francisco, October 22nd to 23rd at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. To find out more and to get your tickets, go to summit.npr.org. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and this is Greta Thunberg. My name is Greta Thunberg. I'm 16 years old. I come from Sweden, and I want you to panic. And Greta wants us to panic because our time on this planet is running out. Back in August 2018, Greta sat outside the steps of the Swedish parliament during school hours, holding a sign that read, School Strike for the Climate. Every Friday, we will sit outside the Swedish Parliament until Sweden is in line with the Paris Agreement. We urge everyone to do the same wherever you are. Sit outside your... And Greta's call for action prompted other students to walk out of their classrooms and demand change in the name of global warming. Some people don't realize what's happening and some people are just, they don't care and they're kind of just shoving it away and ignoring it. People in the world are dying. So many people are dying because of inaction by, the, by our government, you know. We want the government to publicly recognize climate change for the emergency that it is. And then only a few months after Greta had started her protest, young people all over the world decided to join her. A group of students around the world is planning to skip class tomorrow to protest against climate change. Thousands of school students have staged protests around the country and around the globe. What do we want? Students today went on strike for the climate. 
global strike for climate has arrived in America. You are never too small to make a difference. That is what a brave... The fact is, she has become a bona fide climate change rock star with constant media requests. She's reprimanded world leaders, started a movement of hundreds of thousands of students, and has even been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. It's an honor for me to be here with you today. Um, together we are making a difference. We are in the midst of the sixth mass extinction and the extinction rate is up to 10,000 times faster than what is considered normal. With up to 200 species becoming extinct every single day. Erosion of fertile topsoil. Deforestation of our great forests. Toxic air pollution. Loss of insects and wildlife. The acidification of our oceans. These are all disastrous trends being accelerated by a way of life that we here in our financially fortunate part of the world see as our right to simply carry on. There is no greater threat to our species than the climate crisis. In 2018, we emitted more carbon into the air than in any single year in all of human history. The consequences are real, and they're happening right now. So today on the show, we're going to explore ideas around the climate crisis and what we can do to stop the worst of it. Because the thing is, we are running out of time. So can we save our planet from total disaster? Or is it already too late? Well, for Greta Thunberg, unless we do something drastic and do it right now, that answer is yes. Here's more from Greta on the TED stage. If I live to be 100, I will be alive in the year 2103. When you think about the future today, you don't think beyond the year 2050. By then, I will, in the best case, not even have lived half of my life. What happens next? The year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children or grandchildren, maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask me about you, the people who were around back in 2018. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. What we do or don't do right now will affect my entire life and the lives of my children and grandchildren. What we do or don't do right now, me and my generation can't undo in the future. So when school started in August this year, I decided that this was enough. I sat myself down on the ground outside the Swedish parliament. I school striked for the climate. Some people say that I should be in school instead. Some people say that I should study to become a climate scientist so that I can solve the climate crisis. 
but the climate crisis has already been solved. We already have all the facts and solutions. All we have to do is to wake up and change. And why should I be studying for a future that soon will be no more, when no one is doing anything whatsoever to save that future? And what is the point of learning facts within the school system, when the most important facts given by the fine science of that same school system clearly means nothing to our politicians and our society? Some people say that Sweden is just a small country, and that it doesn't matter what we do. But I think that if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school for a few weeks, imagine what we could all do together if we wanted to. Now we're almost at the end of my talk. And this is where people usually start talking about hope. Solar panels, wind power, circular economy, and so on. But I'm not going to do that. We've had 30 years of pep-talking and selling positive ideas. And I'm sorry, but it doesn't work. Because if it would have, the emissions would have gone down by now. They haven't. And yes, we do need hope. Of course we do. But the one thing we need more than hope is action. Once we start to act, hope is everywhere. So instead of looking for hope, look for action. Then, and only then, hope will come. Today, we use 100 million barrels of oil every single day. There are no politics to change that. There are no rules to keep that oil in the ground. So we can't save the world by playing by the rules because the rules have to be changed. Everything needs to change, and it has to start today. Thank you. That's Greta Thunberg. She's a 16-year-old climate activist in Sweden. You can see Greta's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about the climate crisis So you've probably heard that the amount of carbon in our atmosphere is already at an unprecedented level, 400 parts per million, and rising. So 400 parts per million means that for every million particles of air, 400 of them are carbon dioxide. This is chemical engineer Jennifer Wilcox. And that's actually a really dilute system. If we look at the exhaust of a point source like coal-fired power plant, it's 300 times okay, so terms like dilute systems and, and exhaust of a point source, they're a little hard to wrap your head around, but 400 parts per million is a really important number because that's the point that scientists call the carbon threshold, where the climate cycle is thrown off balance. And it's a number that a lot of people are talking about. have now peaked at over 400 parts per million. 403 parts per million. 403.3 parts per million last year. 415 parts per million on Friday, it looks like, from the model. I was watching a congressional hearing a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We now know that definitively at no point during the past 800,000 years has atmospheric CO2 been as high as it is today. 
And uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry mm. was testifying about climate change and uh, mentioned this number, 400 parts per million. Yeah. What's the consensus on parts per million of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere? About 406 today. Okay, 406. And a member of Congress, um, you know, questioned his credentials. That somebody with a pseudoscience degree is here pushing pseudoscience. Are you serious? I mean, this is really serious happening here. You know what? So, you know, you say that there are 400 parts per million in the atmosphere today. Well, you know, there have been times in, in... you know, in, in the history of the Earth, where there were 800 parts per million, mm-hmm. and you know, Secretary Kerry responded by saying, "But, but never, never have humans been on planet Earth." We weren't human beings. I mean, there was a different world, folks. We didn't have seven well, billion people. So how did it get to two thousand? And that's mm-hmm. that's the that's the big difference. That's right. So just I just want to sort of put that into context. Um, so when we talk about 400 parts per million today. It seems like a small number, right? When you think of a million molecules and just 400 of those molecules are carbon dioxide. That's right. But the other thing you should keep in mind, too, is it's not just carbon dioxide. Um, You know, there's other molecules like methane and water vapor um, that also can impact uh, the greenhouse effect. Um, So right now we're at a point where the natural systems are not able to uptake all of that CO2. And uh, and there's now extremely strong evidence that there are correlations between these, this 400 or 410 parts per million in the atmosphere today and the warming of the planet that we're experiencing. So the options we have now are no longer just plain old mitigation. In order to make an impact, we also have to do the removal piece. Okay, so just to be clear, you're you're talking about removing carbon from the atmosphere as much of it as we can to to help get that number down to to safer levels. Yeah. And then the other option is to stop emitting carbon at all? Absolutely, but I would argue they're not either or options. I think that now we're at a stage where the pressure's on and we have to, you know, do both. When we come back in just a moment, Jennifer Wilcox explains how we can pull CO2 out of the air. On the show today, ideas about addressing the climate crisis. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Salesforce. Today's customers want innovative personal experiences from companies. And Salesforce, the customer relationship management solution, can help. Now you can deliver the personalized experiences customers want by uniting your marketing, sales, commerce, service, and IT on an integrated CRM platform. Learn how Salesforce brings customers and companies together at salesforce.com slash NPR. Thanks also to WeTransfer. WeTransfer surveyed over 10,000 of their users in nearly 150 countries and found out that people get their biggest, most creative ideas when they step away from the screen. That's why everything WeTransfer designs makes the most of your time. Their tools are simple and beautiful ways to bring ideas to life and get you back to yours. Find out more at leave.buywetransfer.com. 
Long term, is it better to invest in the stock market or in real estate properties? Am I considered underemployed because I'm paid for less than 40 hours? Or is full-time more of a feeling? I'm Cardiff Garcia, co-host of Planet Money's The Indicator, where we answer these great questions from you, our listeners, every day and in less than 10 minutes. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the climate crisis. And we were just hearing from chemical engineer Jennifer Wilcox about removing carbon from the atmosphere and why just curbing emissions is not enough. We have to stop emitting CO2. But even if we stop emitting CO2, we still have to remove it from the atmosphere to prevent catastrophic warming. That's exactly right. Okay, so how do you how do we even start? I mean, first of all, don't trees do that? I mean, couldn't we just plant a lot of a lot more trees and forests around the world and, and wouldn't that solve the problem? No, planting trees is great. We need to absolutely do that. Aforestation or planting trees on land that didn't otherwise have trees, uh, reforestation, uh, or even restoration of forests. All of that is good, and we're going to need to do that to some extent. But even that is not going to be enough. Because trees cannot possibly pull enough carbon out of the atmosphere that we need to pull out? Exactly. Not on the scale that we need to. And so... These are the different options we have, but in my view, the portfolio of solutions today involve both avoiding CO2 and the removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. So when you talk about removing CO2 from the atmosphere, I mean, are you talking about like like a giant air purifier, like the kind you might have in your in your home, but like a an industrial strength one? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. If you think about how your water purification happens in a Brita filter, say, um, you know, you have a charcoal filter that processes your water and that filtration process captures all of the contaminants in your water so that your water comes out, you know, cleaner. So in a similar way, um, we design large contactors, these units that have a high surface area, and those contactors are filled with materials, and those materials have chemicals inside them that actually react with CO2 selectively. And then those contactors would essentially hold on to that CO2 until you are at a stage in that process where you can actually use the CO2 as a feedstock for a chemical process, or maybe you inject it back into the earth. Because we know that a lot, most of the carbon that exists on planet Earth is actually sequestered in soil, in permafrost, in the Arctic, in the oceans. That's exactly right. But the chemical process is is really not that different from how your, a water filtration system would work to purify water. But in this case, we're purifying air, and the contaminant is CO2. Hmm. When can we start to deploy? I mean, let, you know, let's say we had all the money that we needed now. Mm-hmm. Could we deploy this technology now? Absolutely. So the technology is absolutely ready. These things are happening today. The question is, how can we increase the scale at which they're happening? Here's more from Jennifer Wilcox on the TED stage. There's a company today, a commercial scale company, that can do this as low as $600 a ton. There are several other companies that are developing technologies that can do this even cheaper than that. One is called Carbon Engineering. They're based out of Canada. They use a liquid-based approach for separation. 
They have a clever approach that allows them to co-capture the CO2 from the air and the CO2 that they generate from burning the natural gas. And so, by doing this, they offset excess pollution and they reduce costs. So, the companies that are developing these technologies are actually interested in taking the CO2 and making something useful out of it—a marketable product. It could be liquid fuels, plastics, or even synthetic gravel. And don't get me wrong; these carbon markets are great, but these are not large enough to solve our climate crisis. We also need to be willing to invest as a global society. We could have all of the clever thinking and technology in the world, but it's not going to be enough in order for this technology to have a significant impact on climate. We really need regulation. We need subsidies, taxes on carbon. What will be required is that for carbon-neutral, carbon-negative paths to be affordable for the majority of society, in order to impact climate. Jennifer, why do you think that there's a disconnect between what you know and what many scientists know, and what the public doesn't seem to really worry about all that much? That's a good question. I think that part of this is because CO2, it's a pollutant, but you know we know that when you emit soot in the atmosphere, um, you you don't get to see the sunset very well. It affects our day, and so I think with this you can't see CO two. It's it's if it smelled, maybe it would be we would be more uh, you know, or if it if it was in our face every day, interrupting our view, um, that would be one thing. But it's difficult because. It doesn't have any of these negative characteristics, but yet we know now, with pretty high certainty, that these increased levels of CO2 directly correlate to the warming of our planet.、Hmm. But I think because it's just, it's not as dire as some of these other pollutants in the short term in our day-to-day -day lives that we tend to just look the other way.、Hmm. Do you think the goal of reaching net zero emissions? Is realistic and and even attainable. I think it's technically, you know, and technologically, it's absolutely realistic and it is doable. But I think if our governments fail to act on helping to subsidize and support these efforts, it's it's not going to be feasible. That's Jennifer Wilcox. She's a professor at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. You can see Jennifer's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about the climate crisis. This period is now the warmest in the history of modern civilization. Things like increased droughts, increased heat waves, in some cases, increased flooding, melting of Arctic sea ice, land-based glaciers, ice sheets in Antarctica. You also have ocean acidification, which is already damaging. The crisis is so urgent that it raises a question: Can humans come together to solve it? Yeah. It's a very difficult problem, but we've actually come together before to solve another global environmental crisis—the hole in the ozone layer. That's right. And this example could serve as a model for climate change. It happened in 1988, and it was called the Montreal Protocol. The Montreal Protocol is essentially the first and only example of a successful international agreement to protect the environment. This is Sean Davis. 
I mean, this treaty is the first universally ratified treaty ever that has 193 countries that have signed it. The former Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, said that it's perhaps the single most successful international agreement to date. Hmm. So I think that that knowledge of how you can use scientific information to inform policy, like, we've been here before. Sean's a scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So I really focus on the stratosphere, which is the layer of the atmosphere above where we live in the troposphere. Um, And that's really where the ozone layer occurs. Um, And the ozone layer is the Earth's sunscreen that protects us from deadly ultraviolet radiation from the sun. So it's like, this is, yeah, we need this thing. That's right. And in fact, uh, I believe there's evidence that life did not come out of the ocean until there was an ozone layer overhead. It's not an exaggeration to say that a threat to the ozone layer is a threat to human safety. That's Sean Davis on the TED stage. But before we get to the Montreal Protocol and how it saved the ozone layer, we have to go back to the 1970s. When some questionable choices were made. First of all, hairstyles. (laughs) Second of all, objectively terrible quantities of hairspray. And third, CFCs chlorofluorocarbons, man-made chemicals that were used as propellant in aerosol spray cans. And you see, it turns out, these CFCs were a problem because they were destroying the ozone layer. And actually, ironically, it was human safety that motivated the invention of CFCs in the first place. You see, in the early days of refrigeration, refrigerators used toxic and flammable chemicals like propane and ammonia. For good reason, the refrigeration industry wanted a safe alternative. And they found that in 1928, when a scientist named Thomas Midgley synthesized the first commercially viable CFCs. At the time, CFCs were a really remarkable invention. They allowed what we now know as modern-day refrigeration and air conditioning and other things. Okay, so CFCs were created in the 1920s, and for a while they seemed pretty useful, but then what happened? Well, so really, these were sort of wonder chemicals because (laughs) unlike all these other chemicals that had been used before, they were completely non-toxic and non-flammable. So you could literally inhale some of this stuff and it wouldn't hurt you at all. You could blow out a candle. It wouldn't cause a huge explosion. These were really kind of fascinating chemicals that people could use and they led to this sort of explosion of uses in refrigeration, modern-day air conditioning, Hmm. blowing of foam. They had all kinds of uses as uh, industrial solvents and electronics manufacturing. But ironically, the thing that made them most useful also made them most dangerous. It wasn't actually until over 40 years later in the 1970s when scientists realized that CFCs would break down high in the atmosphere and damage the ozone layer. And this finding really set off a lot of public concern. It led ultimately to the banning of CFC usage in aerosol spray cans in the U.S. and a few other countries in 1978. Now, the story doesn't end there because CFCs were used in much more than just spray cans. In 1985, scientists discovered the Antarctic ozone hole. And this was a truly alarming discovery. Scientists did not expect this at all. 
before the Antarctic ozone hole, scientists expected maybe a 5 or 10% reduction in ozone over a century. But what they found over the course of less than a decade was that more than a third of the ozone had simply vanished over an area larger than the size of the U.S. And although we now know that CFCs are the root cause of this ozone hole, at the time, the science was far from settled. Yet, despite this uncertainty, the crisis helped spur nations to act. All right, so there's an agreement. Everybody agrees it's a problem. And, uh, and the U.S. government signs this treaty with countries around the world, I guess, right? The Montreal Protocol that basically says, we're done, CFC's done, and uh, we're going to fix this. Is that more or less what happened? Well, not quite. Okay. The Montreal Protocol was, was actually sort of a baby step, it turns out. Hmm. So the very first iteration of the Montreal Protocol was actually only to decrease the production of CFCs by about 50% before the year 2000. You know, the initial protocol wasn't perfect, but it really allowed, it set up the framework by which we could really hit the brakes on ozone depletion. And that's really what happened. So in the decade plus since Montreal was signed, it's actually been amended and strengthened eight times. Wow. And so, you know, you go from this thing that's really a baby step to now complete phase out of CFCs. And not only complete phase out of CFCs and replacement of those, but replacements of the replacements. And we're now seeing that this has been really successful. And I think that's the most optimistic thing to me about the Montreal Protocol and the ozone story is that it did seem insurmountable. And looking back on it now, you can see, well, yeah, well, we did that. You know, we phased out ozone depleting substances. We've saved the ozone layer. And not to say it wasn't easy, but it wasn't as hard as people thought. I think it's worth asking the question, as we face our current environmental crisis, global warming, what lessons can we learn from Montreal? Are there any? I think there are. First, we don't need absolute certainty to act. When Montreal was signed, we were less certain then of the risks from CFCs than we are now of the risks from greenhouse gas emissions. Second, it takes a village to raise a healthy environment. The Montreal Protocol wasn't just put together by industry and governments or environmental advocacy groups and scientists. It was put together by all of them. And if we're going to solve global warming, it's going to take actions at all levels, from the individual to the international and everything in between. Third lesson, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. While Montreal has become the brake pedal for stopping ozone depletion, at its beginning, it was more just like a tap on the brakes. It was actually the later amendments to the protocol that really marked the decision to hit the brakes on ozone depletion. So to those who despair that the Paris Climate Accord didn't go far enough, or that your limited actions on their own won't solve global warming, I say, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Okay, so I hear what you're saying about the parallels with the Paris Accord, right? But at the same time, the U.S. 
was on board with the Montreal Protocol, right? Like, I don't remember anyone saying the hole in the ozone layer was a hoax. Like, everybody agreed it was a big problem and we had to solve it. That's right. That's one of the surprising things in sort of looking back on this issue is that really we did achieve a sort of bipartisan consensus in the U.S. that this was a problem. And that's actually evidence of that is that the Montreal Protocol was unanimously ratified by the U.S. Senate in 1988. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if I can imagine anything getting unanimous ratification that, you know, motherhood and apple pie are good anymore. Yeah, but I have to think that carbon just seems just by an order of magnitude more complex, right? I mean, I mean, CFCs are CFCs, but but like carbon emissions power the global economy. That's right. Right? I mean, fossil fuels are still king. And so, I mean, can you really apply the principles of Montreal to... Uh, you know, a a treaty that basically does the same with carbon emissions? You know, that's right. There are really important differences between the ozone problem and the carbon problem. And so in the ozone problem, you had a couple hundred chemicals, a couple hundred different industries involved. And, you know, no one really cares what their refrigerant is. They just care that the refrigerator works. So we just had to figure out what the replacements were, and then everything was going to be okay. Yeah. I think with carbon, you have a situation where it's really one chemical, but it's many different uses. And it's fundamentally about how we produce the energy that we use to give ourselves a comfortable life. But even though the problems are quite different from one another, there is some knowledge there that can be gained. I think it helps us to contemplate the world we've avoided. Indeed, the world we've avoided by enacting the Montreal Protocol is one of catastrophic changes to our environment and to human well-being. So as we write the story for Earth's climate future for this century and beyond, we need to ask ourselves, what will our actions be so that someone can stand on this stage in 30 or 50 or 100 years to celebrate the world that they've avoided. Thank you. That's Sean Davis. He's a research scientist at NOAA. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about the climate crisis. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Glenn Livid. Sona Bajaria, vice president of marketing, is trying to change people's perception of scotch. But the idea that scotch is the drink of the old boys club is hard to dismantle. It's not complicated. It's sophisticated. But the category hasn't done a great job of being inviting and welcoming. We need to continue to evolve with the consumer. To learn more about the Glenlivet's new place in the modern world, visit theglenlivetguardians.com. Enjoy responsibly. Human behavior doesn't always make a ton of sense, at least on the surface. I said, would you mind if I give the dogs a little piece of cracker with some hot sauce on it and without and see what they choose? Hidden Brain, a spicy podcast about science, psychology, and why people do what they do. 
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about how we can stop the worst effects of global warming and save our planet. And one of the ways we might be able to do that is by changing our diets and eating a lot less meat. I read a book called Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay. And uh, Francis Moore LePay basically makes the argument that in order to eat meat, we have to grow massive amounts of crops that we then funnel through animals. This is Bruce Friedrich. He's co-founder of a nonprofit called the Good Food Institute. The most recent statistics from the World Resources Institute indicate that it takes about nine calories fed to a chicken to get one calorie back out in the form of chicken meat. And chickens are the most efficient animal. So you're talking about nine times as much land, nine times as much water, nine times as many pesticides and herbicides on the crops. And then you have to ship all of those crops to a feed mill. You have to operate the feed mill. You have to ship the feed to the factory farm. You have to operate the factory farm. You have to ship the animals to the slaughterhouse. You have to operate the slaughterhouse. Once you crunch all of those numbers and all of that inefficiency, what we find is that meat production, according to the United Nations, causes about 14.5% of all human-caused climate change globally. That's more than transportation. So the animal agriculture industry causes more climate change than all of the cars and the trains and the planes, uh, than all forms of transportation combined. Here's more from Bruce Friedrich on the TED stage. I want to get one thing out of the way. I am not here to tell anybody what to eat. Besides, convincing the world to eat less meat hasn't worked. For 50 years, environmentalists, global health experts, and animal activists have been begging the public to eat less meat. And yet, per capita meat consumption is as high as it's been in recorded history. The average North American last year ate more than 200 pounds of meat, and I didn't eat any. Which means somebody out there ate 400 pounds of meat. <laughs> On our current trajectory, we're going to need to be producing 70 to 100 percent more meat by 2050. This requires a global solution. What we need to do is we need to produce the meat that people love, but we need to produce it in a whole new way. I've got a couple of ideas. Idea number one, let's grow meat from plants. Instead of growing plants, feeding them to animals, and all of that inefficiency, let's grow those plants, let's biomimic meat with them, let's make plant-based meat. Idea number two, for actual animal meat, let's grow it directly from cells. Instead of growing live animals, let's grow the cells directly. Take six weeks to grow a chicken to slaughter weight. Grow the cells directly, you can get that same growth in six days. All right, let's talk through this, because we know there are lots of people working on this, and, you know, we've heard of lab-grown meat, and, and there's different kinds of plant-based meat alternatives that are um, trying to mimic, you know, the sort of the texture of meat and, and so on. And it's nearly there on a consumer level. But, I mean, how would it work? Like, how do you actually turn, like, create real meat or, or meat that is indistinguishable from animal meat from plants? Well, one of the central brainstorms here is that people eat meat despite how it's produced. They do not eat meat because of how it's produced. <laughs> so the guy who is the chair of the Ag Economics Department at Purdue, a guy named Jason Lusk, did a survey 
and found that more than 45% of Americans want to ban slaughterhouses. And of course, 98% of Americans are eating meat. So that's a pretty big disconnect. And the main point there is that people are uncomfortable with factory farms. So if people can make choices that are better for the environment, they will. So that's sort of point one. And then point two is everything in meat exists in plants. Meat is made up of lipids and aminos and minerals and water. That's it. So it's not going to be, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's going to take resources. It's hard. But until Ethan Brown came along with Beyond Meat and Pat Brown came along with Impossible Foods, uh, the idea of plant-based meat was not let's hire tissue engineers and plant biologists and meat scientists. Like the central brainstorm of Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat is we can give people the taste, the texture, and everything else that they like about meat, but we can do it with plants. We just need to hire the right scientists. In recent years, some companies have been producing meat from plants that consumers cannot distinguish from actual animal meat. And there are now dozens of companies growing actual animal meat directly from cells. This plant-based and cell-based meat gives consumers everything that they love about meat, the taste, the texture, and so on, but with no need for antibiotics and with a fraction of the adverse impact on the climate. And because these two technologies are so much more efficient at production scale, these products will be cheaper. So one of the really exciting things about Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods is they have sort of thrown down the gauntlet of our target market for these plant-based meats is not vegetarians, it is everybody. And you eat the Beyond Burger, you eat the Beyond Chicken, which fooled both Mark Bittman from the New York Times and Bill Gates, a very big meat eater. Like these products, as well as the Impossible Burger, which fooled the taste testers at Burger King, like these are phenomenal plant-based meats and they're plant-based meat for really everybody. Then the other product, which is a distinct product, the clean meat, so lab-grown meat is a misnomer, Every processed food starts in a food lab. Mm-hmm. You know, Budweiser starts in a food lab. Sure. Every packaged cereal starts in a food lab, but we don't say lab-grown Cheerios. We refer to clean meat uh, as a nod to clean energy. So meat grown directly from cells is meat that is better for the environment in the same way that clean energy is energy that's better for the environment. And this is, again, instead of growing an entire animal, let's grow the cells directly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, here's the thing, right? Like the theme of this episode is we're out of time, that the effects of climate change are here. What you're talking about, it needs to happen now. But how do we get this to happen faster? How do we expedite this process? Well, we need, we need something like Manhattan Project level, moon landing level resources put into reinventing meat. We are at house on fire where climate change is concerned. So we are probably on a trajectory right now where the market will get us to plant-based meat and cell-based meat over time, but we don't really have that much time. So governments that care about these issues should be prioritizing it, making it happen as quickly as it can possibly happen. That's Bruce Friedrich. He's co-founder and executive director 
of the Good Food Institute. You can see his full talk at TED.com. My sense is that when most people hear about climate change, they think, you know, it'll be fine. I just I don't live near the coast or I'll just move inland. Don't you think that's how a lot of people just see it? Yeah. Um, and this is an issue we see in surveys that if you ask people, is global warming a problem or a big challenge for the world? They say almost everybody, yes. And then if you ask, is this going to to pose you a personal risk, or will it harm you or your family, then most people say no. This is Per Espen Stoknes. I um, teach at the Norwegian Business School in um, green economics, and I'm also a climate psychologist, researching in how people respond to the climate science and climate news. Per Espen has been trying to figure out why it's so hard to communicate the urgency of climate change to most people. Most people have recognized, taken in that global warming is happening. The problem is making it relevant to our everyday action so that it feels near, personal and urgent. So it's not really an issue of understanding on the cognitive level. It's more an emotional and a behavioral uh, level that we need to address. Through his research, Perespin has identified several psychological inner defenses that really influence how people think and act about climate change. Here's more from Perespin Stoknes on the TED stage. When people hear news about the climate coming straight at them, the first defense comes up rapidly. Distance. When we hear about the climate, we hear about something far away in space. Think Arctic ice, polar bears. Far away in time, think 2100. Since it feels so far away from me, it seems outside my circle of influence. There's nothing I can do. Next, defense is doom. Climate change is usually framed as a looming disaster. That makes us fearful. But after the first fear is gone, my brain soon wants to avoid this topic altogether. The third defense is dissonance. If what we know that fossil fuel use contributes to global warming, conflicts with what we do, dry, fly, eat beef, then so-called cognitive dissonance sets in. To get rid of this discomfort, our brain starts coming up with justifications. So I can say, for instance, changing my diet doesn't amount to anything if I am the only one to do it. So these justifications make us all feel better, but at the expense of dismissing what we know. My personal cognitive dissonance comes up when I recognize that I've been flying from Oslo to New York and back to Oslo in order to speak about the climate. <laughs> so that, that makes me want to move on to denial. <laughs> denial doesn't really come from lack of intelligence or knowledge, no. Denial is a state of mind in which I may be aware of some troubling knowledge, but I live and act as if I don't know. And often this is reinforced by others, my family or community, agreeing not to raise this tricky topic. Finally, identity. Alarmed climate activists demand that government takes action, either with regulation or carbon taxes. Well, if I hold conservative values, for instance, I probably prefer big, proper cars and small government over tiny, tiny cars and huge government. And if 
climate science comes and then says government should expand further, then I probably will trust that science less. In this way, cultural identity starts to override the facts, and my identity trumps truth any day. So there are all these inner defenses that you identify that that block most of us from seeing the urgency of climate change, and then obviously they stop us from doing anything. Um, so, so how do you counter those defenses? Like, what's the solution? We are a social animal. So when I hear about something that's very abstract, like PPM levels of the Arctic far away from me, it doesn't feel near. What feels near is what my friends are doing, what my kids are doing, what my colleagues at job is doing. And if they are up to something with the climate, then it feels near and personal for me to do it as well. There's this quite famous study done by Bob Cialdini, a professor of psychology. He asked 4,000 households to conserve power at home. The first 1,000 were asked to conserve power because that's sustainable, it's good for the planet. The second 1,000 households were asked to conserve power because they should think about their children, their grandchildren, the future. The third 1,000 were told how much they could save in money by cutting their power consumption. The fourth 1,000 were told how much they use compared to their neighbors. And each time this study is conducted, we find that the largest drop in power use and the long, most sustained changes in the fourth group, those who were compared with the neighbors. So we can flip distance to social. We can make climate feel near personal and urgent by spreading social norms that are positive to solutions. If I believe my friends or neighbors will do something, then I will too. Next, we can flip doom to supportive. Rather than backfiring frames such as disaster and cost, we can reframe climate as being about new tech opportunities, about safety and about new jobs. Then we can flip dissonance to simpler actions. This is often called nudging. The idea is, by better choice architecture, we can make the climate-friendly behaviors default and convenient. Dissonance goes down as more behaviors are nudged. Then flip denial by tailoring signals that visualize our progress. We can provide motivating feedback on how well we're doing with our problem-solving. Finally, we can flip identity with better stories. Our brain loves stories. So we need better stories of where we all want to go. And we need more stories of the heroes and heroines of all stripes that are making real change happen. So, Perispin, um, during this entire episode, right, we've, we've been hearing about how urgent the climate crisis is. Like, this is a house on fire. And so I wonder, I mean, do you think that these flips, as you call them, can work at scale and, and actually build a critical mass for change? Absolutely. So my hope is that we will see like ripples in water, a building of critical mass, just like the resistance for slavery or women's voting rights or civil rights or movement in the 60s and uh, the, the resistance against the Vietnam War. And uh, there's this all 
huge, mostly invisible network of people doing something, building momentum, and you see no progress, no progress, no progress for year and year and year and year, but still there's a building, a social movement around it. And then suddenly at some point, tipping point comes, and then uh, it goes from a committed minority to the majority. And I'm sure this is going to happen, a big swerve. Um, what I'm not sure about is the timing. Is it uh, this summer or is it 2020, 2025? Um, <laughs> I'm uh, certainly looking forward to it. And that's why I feel so heartened about uh, school strikes and, for instance, the work of Greta Thunberg. That they, they seem to be adding to this uh, invisible network, building uh, momentum towards a critical mass. That's Per Espen Stoknes. He's a psychologist and an economist at the Norwegian Business School in Oslo. You can see his full talk at TED.com. Thanks for listening to our show about the climate crisis this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousey, and J.C. Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin and Katie Monteleone. Our intern is Emmanuel Johnson. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.